So I thought we were a bit predictable uh, leading on Biden's uh, vineyard, uh, Martha's vineyard approval. But I suppose it did take a lot for him to push aside all the objections. I mean, Harry, do you think all the American objections are either because they're not used to authorising wind farms or is it because there's still some residual resistance from the Trump era? I think there is a bit of residual resistance. I think there's still, there's resistance in the sense that people are worried that more offshore wind jobs means less fossil fuel jobs, which means there's going to be loads of sudden unemployment, which might be the case in some areas of the country, but it, it's something that Biden's very aware of and setting himself up to hopefully address pretty swiftly. I think the, the interesting thing about the objections in the past is that they've always been really well funded. I think it was about 20 years ago that the first offshore wind farm was proposed in Massachusetts. And I mean, that was shut down by rich coastal property owners who um, just complained that the wind tunnels were going to st- spoil their view. And obviously, the owners of these properties have absolutely massive net worth and can just throw money at this, these sort of uh, legal claims. So it's problems like that, um, really. I think the, the one at the moment that is getting a lot of attention is the fishing groups. The Vineyard Wind Project in particular has actually had to set aside, uh, I think it's $21 million to address that. I used to play rugby in Martha's Vineyard. And all on that coast there, you don't see a single bloody fishing boat. It's mostly a pleasure haunt for rich Americans. Yeah, I mean, definitely. And in a nutshell, that was the problem with trying to get these wind, uh, this wind farm through uh, before. And there have been several other pro- uh, propositions that have gone through. And to be fair, the... Uh, even the Vineyard Wind Project was going to be... I mean, it was delayed and delayed by the Bowen reviews. And uh, Trump himself was very keen on actually getting it shut down and actually moved to... Uh, council permitting process and it was only by President Biden's administration that there's actually managed to be pushed through and actually it should now be installed by 2023 which is actually ahead of what most people were expecting I think most people were expecting the first commercial scale offshore wind farms in the US to be sort of 2024 so it is early sign that things are really being accelerated and actually this 30 gigawatt target that we heard about uh, several weeks ago by 2030 could actually be reached quite easily. I mean if this is all about permitting I mean let's say the whole obstacle globally is mostly about permitting. Can't governments, America hasn't had a new um, pumped hydro storage plant for about 20 years. It might have had one. There are about three or four in the news recently that's proposed. Shouldn't we be applying it not just to wind, but to things like pumped hydro and for things like onshore wind and for things, you know, for things like floating uh, solar on dams you know it, is if it's just a is it just a permitting problem and we're all looking in the wrong direction looking at pricing and investment and there would be plenty of investment if permitting was easier yeah i mean largely i think obviously for, for offshore wind in the us there's a massive uh, infrastructure issue and supply chain issue and i think that's something that we've seen by um the same as sort of the loan guarantees and other sort of uh, funding that Biden has put in towards sort of port upgrades and, and new vessels and things like that. Um, I think you, you'll find the same across the other industries, maybe not pumped hydro because the US has got massive hydropower sort of legacy, really. Yeah, but it's got that legacy and it stopped in the 70s. Uh, environmental groups have, had seen people callously kill whole fishing stocks, river fishing, and ruin other animals' habitats and flood Uh, rare animals habitats because of the callous way it was done and so environmental protection got stronger and stronger until it was impossible to get a uh, a new dam built some of these dams though are 100 years old now so you've got between 20 years and 100 years old dams and and that infrastructure isn't that flexible you can put massive amount of investment into repairing and improving 
a lot of existing dams. As long as you know we had some kind of light touch permitting process, which did protect species, but didn't do it to the exclusion of the activity. Um, let's just move on now. I just want to look at that IEA report. Um, do, do you think IEA is just a a sort of scaremonger for anything new and green? I think that's pretty much because of its oil route. Well, to be honest, when I was um, writing this piece on their new minerals report about how that we're going to have 20, we need 20 times as much nickel and cobalt and 42 times as much lithium and twice as much copper, I think, even, or, or certainly a lot more, uh, even silver for solar plants, that kind of thing. I was just interested in, oh, the, the minerals, that's interesting, and how much more you need. And I kind of neglected the political side a bit. And I think Harry actually had to expand that. Because um, as Carbon Trekker pointed out, maybe it's reasonable to say, oh, we need a lot more minerals. But they also had a segment where they compared the mineral demands of electric cars to conventional cars and said, oh, you need, I think, six or ten times as much minerals. And they did the same thing for the power grid, comparing offshore wind, for example, to natural gas. It's like 12 times as much uh, at the extreme case. But of course, that's a, a bit of it's basically a ridiculous comparison because it just ignores all the the fuel um, there, there with that comparison. They were only looking at what it costs to actually build the plants. I think it's a talking point waiting to happen when you do that. And yeah, I mean, it is. It is. <coughs> if you start a conversation, you know, um, uh, have you stopped beating your wife? Answer yes or no. <laughs> you, you, you're stuck, aren't you? You can't speak. And if you start the conversation saying, well, well you know, the um, all the new stuff is causing problems, so we don't need to do it. Let's stick with fossil fuels. If you start with that as, as an assumption behind everything you do, it, I, I think somebody needs to do something about the IEA. I mean, it has some great data. It does collect good data, and that data is accurate. It's got no future vision whatsoever. It can't see. So, I mean, the way what, what someone should have done with their report is look at how in the past mining has responded to this sudden opportunity i mean we know that that uh, that musk literally said can you get us more nickel please he immediately had two or three of the largest nickel providers in the world cutting deals with him the following week and opening up mines that that um, were perhaps less productive or less promising um on the back of a deal they've cut with them and bang that's happened overnight first somebody needs a material secondly they are successful when they use that material so the price goes up as a result they create a gold rush next there's an avalanche of behavior trying to cash in on that gold rush that's the way all commerce works and and it shouldn't be surprising that that's that's what's going to happen here. I mean, it's great news for a fairly moribund mining industry globally that's been flat for 20 odd years to suddenly go, wow, they really need us and they need more. We can make tons of money here. I don't see a problem with that. All I see is is opportunity. Um, solar, Andres, this was a solar power summit. You really think we're going to get 20 gigawatts of solar manufacturing in Europe, or, or do you not think that? Give me first your opinion, and then give me what, what you've written this week. Well, my opinion is, that just as one example, we've there's this Greenland gigafactory that, that's in Spain, not Greenland, uh, that's five gigawatts. 
that, that says it's going to be open 2024. So that's that's some. You've got Meyer Berger trying to become a German solar manufacturer, and they say they're going to do 1.4 gigawatts in 2023. You have a little, I remember some heterojunction plant by the Russians in Kaliningrad. Um, you've got REC still hasn't done their investment decision on a four gigawatt factory in France, so maybe that won't happen. You've got Oxford PV. So I think to some extent it will happen. I mean, just from what I just said, that's about 10 gigawatts. Okay, let's just question what you just said. The Gigafactory Greenland Hmm. in 2024. Now, let's just do a scenario for 2024. The cost of glass, the cost of aluminium, the cost of silicon has been going up. Um, we've got a a temporary increase and a lack of resources in uh, polysilicon manufacture. Um, We're going to get over that in 2022, 23. All the price drops that should have happened in 21, 22 and 23 are going to hit us in 24. And there's going to be a savage price war. Do you think that Greenland Gigafactory will survive a single year of production? Mm. in a savage price war you know that's what that's what's going to happen and it's not i'm not being a rocket scientist to suggest that you know aggregate pricing will go down 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 and currently it's not going down and so currently you've got a a fairly rosy view of the solar market uh which is going to go away um i I think the mayor burger plans i think uh, make sense I think so, the, so basically, the ones like Oxford PV that have a uh, and Meyer Berger, which have a different technology, can survive. But I think what you're saying survive, is that, but but let's say you are in charge of Meyer Berger, you're the CEO, and you've got your 1.4 gigawatts working in 2023, and you're selling everything. Where do you build your next factory? You build hmm. it where the cheapest labour is, or you build it where the market is. One of those. So if you're going to build it in Europe because Europe's got a market, well, then you're going to build it in Bulgaria or or somewhere where there's relatively cheap labour. You're not going to build it in Germany. You're not going to build it in Spain. You're not going to build it in France because you're going to have a labour problem with respect to the total cost of uh, of building. So I, I just people say they're going to build factories in Europe. I've been in this business for 40 years. And nobody ever does. They, have they been saying it all that time? I wouldn't know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we're going to build a, a, a huge factory building semiconductors. Um, we're going to sell the factory to the Americans. And you know what? They're going to move manufacturing to Mexico. That's exactly what happens all the time. There was a representative from the European Commission there who was saying, oh, we're really interested in supporting you. But I don't know how seriously you can take those people, actually. The way the European Commission supports always is to put five or six companies together, put up half the money and do R&D. And that keeps us on the bleeding edge of know-how, which means we can export intellectual property to build it in cheaper countries. For some reason, I did another little piece on Ocean Sun. I have been a fan for a while, but what the CFO think it's Louis. This is the floating solar company. Floating solar company, yeah. It's that they, and of course, I looked everywhere. Where is this trial? The trial in Colombia um, is un- is not, they can't tell us. It's a secret. Colombia's had floating solar for about 10, ten years. I mean, it's, it's two or three um, different versions of it have been installed as pilots in Colombia because it's right on the equator. One of the things about floating solar is you either 
put it on a rigid platform and you tilt it towards the sun and you wedge it in place um or you put it on a flat platform and you 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 accept that it won't get quite as much sun twice as much energy but that ocean sun has a policy of making sure it's prioritizes um projects close to the equator and on in columbia I, i suggested broke the world record in delivering um ten dollars uh, uh per megawatt hour whereupon the ceo said to me yeah no we haven't we that's that's our costs up to the transformer that hasn't included things like the transmission to the grid substation and and the profit for the developer and some and permitting costs so so actually it's not an official figure please don't quote it so i quoted it and i put his <laughs> comments in um floating is notoriously more expensive than fixed. And here we have, because it's yielding so much energy, $10 per megawatt hour, even if that's before those costs, and even if that shoves it up to 14 or 15 or 16, it's still close to a world record. And it means that floating solar is not more expensive than fixed. And that's, that's really important. Why is there the secrecy about the buyer? I'll, I can guess for you, but I don't know. Okay. All right. you know, it, it's, it's probably the same buyer who's bought the previous ones and it wasn't happy with the costs. Okay. And it's right. trying to get something cheaper and it doesn't want to upset the previous suppliers who did it on rigid platforms some time ago with probably older, less sensitive panels. Uh, so, I, you know, so I think that it's just um, politically apposite at the, at the moment. But I think they will get announced. I love the way they've got all sorts of projects. I mean, they've got five or six projects and they're all heading for volume. This is a tiny company, but it is, it is doing what we said about the last story. It's got a bit of intellectual property. When you look at the pictures, or especially videos, of 20 people walking around on what is a two millimetre thick sort of fabric that, that is floating, underneath it is just water. It's quite remarkable that they've come up with this fabric. It's not theirs, it's purchased in the open market, it, but it's so much cheaper to float these things. You, they're, they're saying they can put a 70 square metre, um, you know, a football field worth of solar panels in the water in one day. You know, they drive up in a truck and they roll this thing out and they put it in the water and they take it down the, down the lake and then they wedge it in place. And that's one day. And they've only just managed one in one day, half a megawatt in a day. Harry, we, we've had the Texas big freeze. We've had the Gulf of Suez blockage. And now we have a cyber attack. Please explain yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, I suppose the, the fiasco's kind of come to an end. And yeah, so the Colonial Pipeline should be back up and running by this weekend, according to Joe Biden. Essentially, what happened was, and it was actually basically a week ago now, that uh, the Colonial Pipeline, which is a 5,000 mile stretch of pipeline up the east coast of the US, basically collecting the shale oil producers in Texas with the demand centers right up to New York. It was basically attacked by this ransomware attack, caused the operators, or who are also called Colonial Pipeline, to shut down. Uh, the operations to basically to make sure that the perpetrators couldn't cause any more damage to the system. Uh, we've since found out that it was this organisation called Darkside, who, while they're sort of based in Russia, theoretically don't have any affiliation with any political groups, uh, and they stole this sort of 100 gigabytes worth of data, which was apparently part of the sort of poorly protected information systems, um, which would, would theoretically mean uh, that Darkside could potentially either control the pipeline or actually just publish the information that they um, they found sort of online. We found what, out that what, what could the published information be? How much 
oil has leaked from the pipeline. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's been very little information about it, and it's all been kept very quiet. I mean, we didn't know whether or not Colonial were going to intending to pay the ransom um, until literally this morning. Um, we woke up and found out the news that they paid five million dollars to uh, prevent any sort of further. This is another going. another example of the fossil fuel industry just being cheapskates. Same as Texas. Uh, we don't want to weatherize anything. We you know what's what's going to happen in Texas. It's going to snow. Well, it did. And they go, what, what do you think is going to happen here? What Russians are going to try and take control of the pipeline? Don't be ridiculous. Well, they have. This is they probably wasn't even encrypted. They probably don't have the most basic security measures. And people talk about this as if it's. Um, as if it's some kind of cyber attack. It is technically a cyber attack, but if you have your doors open and your windows open and thieves come into your house, it's not too surprising. This is, this is I'm going to not spend any money on what I think is an unlikely outcome. I mean, the dark side is from Star Wars. It's even an American <laughs> name. You know, and the leader will be Darth Vader. Uh, and it is, it's at that level we're dealing here. And the whole... Uh, fuel um, system of America can be held to ransom on uh, it's ridiculous. So I think I, th- I think it's really interesting this idea of um, sort of ethical ransomware because I mean their dark side website they claim that they're not going to target medical companies, funeral directors, schools, go- uh, government organisations. Really does put fossil fuel companies at a massive amount of risk um, <laughs> because I mean if if you were a if you were a cyber criminal trying to get some ransom. These infrastructure projects are, are so exposed uh, technically and they're so profitable because they're such critical um, parts of the infrastructure. So you can basically ask for what you want. And, and in the case of colonial planning, you can get what you want. If yeah, these I, weren't 15 year olds in school, um, they would be terrorists with a hex, with a with a chainsaw cutting through the pipe. I mean, it, they, it's, pipes are very exposed and it's very difficult to keep them healthy all the, all, all the time. But if you don't ever put any protection in place you are asking for um trouble um vietnam what, what led you to write another piece about vietnam uh, andres what's the um i just suppose i'm a little bit obsessive about them and it, I, I can tell you why it's because they they're sort of struggling and they, they built so much renewables and now we get to see them try and cope with it they had like one or two years of a really generous feed-in tariff and then they realized that it was way too generous and they built a third of their whole grid's capacity was now solar with a bit of wind and they couldn't actually integrate all of it and it's just uh, a lot of issues writ large with transmission and that kind of thing when you over over tune your subsidies because they cut it once and then they still had another like 10 gigawatts of solar in one year or something what's happening this time is they are trying to get the um, hydropower, actually. I say coal, which is true. They're, they're reducing their coal generation by 6% this year, even though the grid demand is increasing by 2%, um, which, which would be a lot higher if not for the pandemic. But one thing they're doing is they are turning off 8 gigawatts of hydropower, specifically from 11 a.m. to midday. And, and the fact that it's a specific directive for a specific hour-long window to make way for solar suggests that it's not fluid compared to what you would have like on, on a Western grid. And they are really struggling to get the dispatchable electricity out of the way when solar is, is uh, fully running full steam ahead. So um, they, they really need to expand their transmission grid, which isn't news uh, at all. Yeah, and they're, they- trying, they're trying to pr- project uh, protect all the developers because you said when we talked about this before that 
developers shouldn't be hurt by curtailment if there's a feed-in tariff, I think. But they seem to be in, in Vietnam. And so the, they're trying not to hit the developers too much. All of these little businesses that took out loans, uh, they want to get their feed-in tariff money. Right. Well, you know, a feed-in tariff is if you choose to send it to the grid, it will pay you, whether, you know, whether it can accept it or not. And uh, I think curtailment is paid for in most countries. Here's, here's a monopoly energy supply, so we don't know. Or you're saying it's not the case. Interestingly for me, the slow Vietnam drift falling out of love with coal, uh, I did not expect to start until about 2030, 2033. And so you're saying it's falling already in 2021. And that would be really interesting. Uh, and, and if it's not going to gas, which... Um, also we had creeping up over the next um, 10 years i think um, they are transi- transitioning to gas quite a lot maybe even more than renewables right now right okay so i mean it'd be interesting to look at the look back at anger numbers again and say well six months on how do we feel this is going to change in this particular country i mean obviously countries um uh, that make statements about when they're going to be zero emission are easy, easier to predict than people who haven't made any statements. So what we, we did in, in their country case is just carry on the momentum until we felt that their neighbours, like China, would begin to produce um, energy with more, less less carbon and therefore set a, a, a kind of leadership for them. And they... Um, yeah, and a lot of it is post-2030, and you're saying it's happening now, and that's we need to perhaps go back and look at that model and uh, adjust it accordingly. And using their official targets would probably not be good enough because they accidentally matched, uh, surpassed their 2025 target last year. By bringing <laughs> well, you just assume they're going to hit all the targets five years early. I mean, the whole thing about look back in anger is saying, well, how they performed in the past. Oh, they hit their targets five years early. Okay, let's take that target and hit five years early. And that's what we did. I mean, we haven't done that with the China numbers because they're so big. But we know that China's going to hit their numbers five years early.